Chapter 15, starting in verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, we're going to start over. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. These are the words of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. Anybody have a hard time waking up this morning, getting up, getting out of bed? Getting out of bed? Okay, okay, you're honest. Many of you are very honest. I was thinking about calling in sick after that Cardinals loss last night. Oh my goodness. But you know what? Did, did, did we have a fantastic uh, Christmas Eve services? Oh my goodness. It was outstanding. We had a blast here. What a moment at the end of the service with those candles lit and singing that amazing song that just, it was beautiful. What a, what a great experience. Good to have you with us this morning, and we're wrapping up this teaching series, Come Home for Christmas. We're looking at the shoes of sonship, Luke chapter 15. If you want to study more on this topic, uh, you can read the whole chapter 15. It's a great chapter. Grab your sermon notes out. Take a look at the intro here. Every human being, every person is desperate for acceptance, significance, and security, love, purpose, reassurance, confidence, and, and, and hope. We all need that. You can't survive unless you have those three things in your life. When we try to find these in created things more than the creator, and that's, that's our problem. That's our fundamental problem. Our fundamental need are these three things. Our fundamental problem is that we try to get those needs met in created things rather than the creator. That's our problem. That's fundamentally what is wrong with us. And then we become mired in emotional and psychological issues. So a lot of our negative emotions are coming because we've built our life on something that's temporal 
Something created and it starts letting us down and we show that through our response to it. It can even be something really good in our life, a marriage, our kids, our career, any number of things. So our, our re- emotional response to those things, not that we aren't to have any kind of emotional response, but it's the inordinate emotional response that really reveals that we've overly attached our heart to these temporal things. When the prodigal son returned home, he received three gifts from the father that every child of God receives from their father, made possible through the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. So we got the robe of righteousness, that was our first week of this series, our acceptance, ring of authority, significance, talked about that last weekend, and then uh, this weekend, the, the shoes of sonship, security. So what do shoes represent in the Bible? Here's your first fill in the blank. They represent rights, our rights. The father was giving back to the prodigal son his rights of sonship. That's your next fill in the blank, his rights of sonship. Now what's interesting about this is that the prodigal son didn't want to be treated as a son, but, but a servant because of his bad behavior. Remember his little speech that he was, he was working on? And, he, and so as he's coming to his father, he was telling his father, which his father cut him off in mid-speech and gave him that robe and ring and shoes and celebrated that he was home. My son was lost, now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. And, uh, and, and, and yet the son felt like, hey, I don't deserve any, anything. I just want to be treated as one of my father's hired servants. But we are all sons because of birthright, because of our birthrights, n- not because of our behavior. It's birthright, not behavior. It's not our behavior that gets us in. It's, it's a gift. It's not something we achieve, it's something we receive. And so to receive the shoes of sonship, we must, first of all, take off our shoes, which means giving up our rights. That's repentance. And then secondly, putting on our shoes, which means taking hold of our rights of sonship, believing. And when we get to these, these are out out of this world, what we have in Christ Jesus. Our Our rights of sonship are amazing, but we've got to, first of all, take off our shoes, which means giving up our rights, repent. So in the Bible, taking off your shoes means giving up your rights. Let me give you some examples of this. Uh, Ruth chapter four, verse seven, we have the story. In fact, the whole book is about the love story of Boaz and Ruth. You guys familiar with that story? It's It's a beautiful story. And because Ruth was a widow, according to the Jewish laws, Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10, the first male family member, which was known as a kinsman redeemer, beautiful imagery of our Savior. And so this kinsman redeemer must marry her to preserve her deceased husband's name. But the first in line didn't want to marry her for for some unknown reason. So... He could give up his right by taking off his sandal and giving it to another, and which he did, and therefore we have Boaz marrying Ruth. So he takes off his sandal, basically, and gives it to Boaz, and Boaz has that right to do that. A great example of that. Exodus 3.5, Moses takes off his shoes before God, before the burning bush, 
And what does God do? Sends him on a mission to lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage to the promised land. And so he's giving up his right. He's a sheep herder. He's a shepherd on the backside of the desert. And he comes before the burning bush, takes off his shoes. Uh, Symbolic, really, in so many ways that he's standing on holy ground. But he's taking off his rights. He's no longer going to be a, a shepherd of sheep. He's going to be a shepherd of people. He's going to take on the rights of what God has called him to do. Another example is found in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Joshua takes off his shoes before the commander of the Lord's army and receives his marching orders to begin conquering the promised land. In verse 13 of that text, a man is standing before Joshua with with a drawn sword. So these guys are getting ready to go into the promised land and take down Jericho And there's a man standing before him with a drawn sword, and Joshua asked him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. What kind of response is that? I mean, like, but I am the commander of the Lord's army. I think it's a Christophany. I think this is Jesus showing up in the story. Phenomenal story. And basically what he's saying is, I'm not here to serve you, but you are here to serve me. That's why he took off his shoes. This isn't about your plan, it's about my plan. I'm gonna come and tell you exactly what I want you to do. So there's three examples in the Bible. So first, take off our shoes, which means giving up our rights, means to repent. Now, if we're gonna enjoy the rights of sonship, we must take off our shoes and give up our rights, repent, of either being a younger brother or an elder brother, because that's what we see in the story. Oftentimes, people think that there's two ways to live. You can either be a younger brother, or you can be a Christian. And and oftentimes, we've heard that story. We call it the prodigal son. It's actually prodigal sons. Both of these sons are lost. There's a younger brother and an elder brother in the story. In fact, the elder brother's more lost than the younger brother. And so we tend to fall into one of those two categories. There's actually three ways to live. You can live like the younger brother or the elder brother, or you can actually be a Christian. You can be a follower of Christ. You can understand the gospel and live that out. And most people don't know that. They, they tend to think that, oh, I was once a younger brother, now I become a Christian. No, you become an elder brother if you really look at your life. Oftentimes people do that. And I've oftentimes seen people go from being a younger brother to an elder brother back to a, a younger brother. You know, they go out and live like heck, and then they go, oh, I can't be living like this, and they come back in, and he, they're almost converted into an elder brother, only to find out, well, that doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work. It's religion. And then they go right back out again. And they go back and forth between the two. And so there's actually three ways to live, elder brother, younger brother, or become a Christian, the gospel. Like I said, our most fundamental need in life are these three uh, gifts, acceptance, significance, security. Our most fundamental problem is that we try to get these needs met either like a, a younger brother or an elder brother. Now, both of the sons wanted the father's stuff more than they wanted the father. Both of the sons are trying to be their own Savior and Lord. Both of them, these are efforts in trying to be your own Savior and Lord. So let's take a look at the first one, the younger brother. I think it's important for us to be able to identify this. And you need to be able to identify which one you tend to gravitate towards. We all here tend to gravitate towards one or the other. 
or between the two of them back and forth. And so the younger brother, this is how we miss the father, two ways to, to, that we sin. Younger brother, he's all about breaking all the rules. Self-discovery, irreligion, live however I please. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. It's called expressive individualism in our culture today. And create your own path. Look at verse, uh, in fact, we haven't done this, but let's unpack these verses here a little bit. Verses 11 and 12, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Now, typically in this culture, the elder brother got two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger brother got one-third of the inheritance. So that's what he received. He received one-third of the inheritance. But to ask for your inheritance while dad is alive is to wish he was dead I mean, this is a major insult to, to the father. I want your stuff, but not you. Now, the traditional Middle Eastern father would be expected to respond to such a request by driving the son out of the family with nothing except physical blows to chase him off. Get out of here. I'm going to work you over. I'm going to take you out. How dare you insult me and this family like that? And that was very, very typical. But what's amazing about this father, he doesn't do that, but simply divides the property. Now, the word property here in this text, the Greek word is bios, biology. That's, what we, that's the word there, which means life. So the father's net worth was in land, not in bank accounts. So to lose your land would be to lose yourself and your standing in the community. So the younger son is asking his father to tear his life apart. And um, ordinarily, when our love is rejected, we get angry and retaliate so that it won't hurt so badly. That's our natural response. This father patiently endures not only the pain of disrespect, but also rejected love. It's, it's an, an amazing picture. And then in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's an interesting word. Reckless living just basically means a, a life out of control. I'm just going to make my own path. I'm going to do my own thing. Which, by the way, in our culture today, American society, we celebrate that. We celebrate younger brothers doing their own thing. That's our culture. Now, anytime we try to get control of our life by running from God, we only end up giving up control of our life to other things. Your life is going to be controlled by someone or something. You were created to have God in charge of your life, you were created to worship Him. Worship and serve Him. But if you don't worship and serve Him, you will worship and serve something that is created rather than the Creator. And we end up giving up control of our life to created things. It is really, when you do that, like the younger brother, it is the suicidal exchange of the eternal and infinite satisfaction for temporal and limited satisfaction. It's insane. I mean, when you think about it, what this younger brother does is, is delusional. 
He's thinking he's going to be happier by chasing something in this world as opposed to staying there on the farm with the father with all that he has. See, that's the same choice we have when it comes to either being on the farm with the father or out chasing the world. The Bible says, what good is it if the man gains the whole world but loses his soul? Of course, he could come back on the farm and be like his older brother. You don't want to do that either, and we'll talk about that. That's the next one, the elder brother. So that's the younger brother. We have to, we have to, we have to confess of, of, of that sin of the younger brother. But here's the elder brother sin, and this is my tendency. And this is most Christians' tendency right here is we tend to gravitate towards this elder brother. It's, it's easier to live this way. It's hard to continue to have this relationship with God. It's so much better, it's more satisfying. Well, we tend to go into this kind of mode of just kind of robotically going through the motions, checking the church box, reading the Bible, check that box, prayer, check that box, and not really have an intimate relationship with God. We're just going through the motions, and we get to this place where we begin to use God. And we become like this elder brother. So the younger brother is, is about breaking the rules, self-discovery, irreligion. Elder brother is about keeping all the rules. Elder brothers keep the rules. Believe me. And they're going to go around and they're the enforcer of everybody else keeping the rules. And they'll even make up rules. They'll add to those rules. And it's, it's more about moral conformity. It's religion. It's legalism earn my salvation by good works. There's really, elder brothers have no assurance of the Father's love. They have this joyless, fear-motivated compliance. They're angry, they're bitter, they have an attitude of superiority, there's unforgiveness, there's an attitude of entitlement. Oftentimes I hear this when someone goes through suffering, they'll say something like this, wow, I mean, after I went to church, I prayed, I dropped money in the box, I was even part of a small group, and this is what happens to me? That's entitlement. That's an elder brother response. Look at verses 28 and 30. If you have your Bibles open there, Luke 15, but he was angry, so the party's going on, they're throwing a party for the younger brother, the party's going on, and it says that he was angry and refused to go into the party. See, listen to me, elder brothers always miss the party. They always miss the party. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him compassionately, pleaded with him. It's like, come on, son. The initiating love of the father, it's amazing. But he answered his father, listen to the disrespect. He didn't even call him father. He doesn't even refer to his brother as a, his, his the younger brother as, as his brother. He says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Let me go into this a little bit deeper. I'm going to read a quote here. By the way, when I read quotes from books and people, it doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with everything they say. So I eat the meat, spit out the bones, you need to do the same. But there, there are people out there that I'll quote from that I don't, like I said, I don't necessarily agree with everything that they say. So I don't want to get dogged over the fact that I make quotes from people that maybe you might not like, okay? 
So listen to the quote. Don't miss the quote because of the person that I'm quoting here, okay? Does that make sense? I probably, just, I probably need to do that from time to time, but I do. I take a beating sometimes because I'll quote from different people, and through the years I've had people come after me over that. And I said, I think you missed the quote. You were so concerned about this person. This is actually from Timothy Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, Rediscovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. And it's, it's really very insightful. It's based on this 15th chapter of uh, Luke. But listen to what he says. I found this really helpful. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. So in that He's, he's making a distinction that there's three ways to live, elder brother, younger brother, or the gospel. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. By contrast, elder brothers divide the world in two. The good people, like us, are in, and the bad people, who are the real problem with the world, are out. Younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing, saying, no, the open-minded, intolerant people are in, and the bigoted and narrow-minded people, who are the real problem with the world, are out. So we all have this kind of self-righteousness that we're saying, the good are in that are like me and the bad that are not like me are out, one way or the other. Whether we're younger brothers or elder brothers, we all tend to do that. He goes on, he says, but Jesus says, no, the humble are in and the proud are out. The people who confess they aren't particularly good or open-minded are moving toward God because the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know you need it. Good quote, end of quote. So we gotta talk about what true repentance is for both of these brothers. They both need to repent. And, and so true repentance I think it's found in verses 17 through 19 of uh, the younger brother coming home. So let let me read this and let's walk through it because this is what true repentance looks like. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, talking about the younger brother, he said, so he came to his senses. What does it mean to come to your senses? Well, this is what it means. This is what it means to repent. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So what does that mean to come to your senses? It means to recognize that within your heart there is an inconsolable longing, that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy. That's when you're coming to your senses. You recognize that uh, there's nothing on this planet that can satisfy me more than God. That's, That's coming to your senses. That's where repentance really begins. Only he can satisfy me. Only he can love me. Only he can accept me. Only he can give me significance. Only he can give me security unlike anything else on this planet. 
Now, there's where the battle is because we tend to get our significance and identity and security from a whole lot of other things other than God. And we don't know that until those things are threatened, blocked, or lost that we're building our sense of identity on. And then our emotional response shows us how much we've attached our heart to those things. Just, it's just good, good psychology, good healthy uh, way of looking and understanding that. He goes on, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's true repentance. I've trampled on your love and wisdom. Both, I've trampled on God's love and wisdom, I've trampled on your love and wisdom. See, it's, it's oftentimes people repent, but they repent because of they're, they're sorrowful how, over how their, the pain their sin has caused them rather than how it caused God, the heart of God and the heart of others. That's true repentance. When you recognize, I trampled on the love and wisdom of God. This is crazy. Why would I do that? I broke the heart of the people in my life. doesn't matter how bad I feel getting caught or whatever. I trampled on their love. That was a dagger to the heart of God. He sent his son to bleed and die for me. What was I thinking? See, that's what's going on with this guy. And then verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. In other words, I can't achieve, but I can only receive my rights of sonship back. I can't, I can't achieve this. There's nothing I can do to ever earn right standing with God. And that's, what you, that's, that's true repentance. So I have this inconsolable human longing. I recognize I've trampled on God's love and wisdom. He always loves me. He has my best interest at heart. And I said, fooey on you. Forget you. I'm going to do my own thing. And, and he says, I can't earn it. So younger brothers must repent of their sins. So what do elder brothers repent of? They repent of their good deeds. I know that sounds crazy. They repent of their good deeds. Yeah, thinking that by their good deeds they can earn a right standing with God. At least the younger brother realizes it. I can't earn that. I can't earn that. Elder brothers think somehow that they've achieved some sort of status because of their good behavior before God. They don't understand the grace that they're desperate in need of. That's the reason why you need to always know this, that you are never so bad you can't receive God's grace, younger brothers. And you're never so good that you don't need God's grace, older brothers. Make sense? So anytime an elder brother comes in there and he's got this holier-than-thou, self-righteous, he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't understand the cross. The cross... Every time you look at it, there should be saying a couple things. One is, I'm, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to dream. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. That should humble all of us, whether we're younger brothers or elder brothers. Elder brothers tend to forget that. It's so easy for us to fall prey to that. And uh, we should never, ever, ever get over, get over grace. I, I didn't say the rest of that, the rest of that, that's those two statements when you look at the cross. The cross is telling us about how sinful we are, but how loved we are at the same time. We're more loved than we ever dared to dream. We were so loved, Jesus wanted to die for us. It's amazing. And you should never, ever, ever get over that. When you get over that, you become an elder brother. 
Or you become a younger brother. You go back out thinking that you're going to find it out there somewhere in the world. It's not true. Absolutely not true. You're never so bad you can't receive God's grace. You're never so good that you don't need God's grace. So here's the test. Here's the test for both, for both uh, younger brothers and elder brothers. If I'm living in that sweet spot of God's grace. You never lose that overwhelming sense of wonder and indebtedness in success or suffering. You see, all the success in this world can't add anything to what you have in Christ, and all the suffering in this world can't take anything from that. In other words, what you have in Christ is so amazing, and we're gonna get to the amazing part here in just a minute. It's so out of this world, it's so overwhelming that all the success in the world cannot add anything to what you have there. And all the suffering in this world can't take away from that. So first take off your shoes, which means giving up our rights so we repent, that's what repentance is, and then here's the second one. Putting on our shoes, which means taking hold of our rights of sonship, believing, repent and believe. Remember what the uh, father said to the what the father said to the elder brother when the elder brother saw in a temper tantrum, acting all like entitled and angry at the father, so profound. He, he, he says to him, son, literally, I mean, those are, those are sweet words. He's saying, child, son, I love you. Don't you understand that he's using a very tender word here, son. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. I would encourage you to just take that statement right there and meditate on it until it gets a hold of your heart. I mean, he's describing all that we have in Christ Jesus. We have his presence. We have the promise that he's always got our best interest at heart. He's always with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's got us covered. Now, I'm going to spell out the specifics of that here in just a minute. But let, let's talk a little bit about what is historical biblical sonship. I'll give you a little theology on that so that you understand it biblically. Ancient cultural sonship was about carrying on the family name and wealth. That's your next couple fill in the blanks. So family name represented values, beliefs, culture, and reputation. Oldest son, as we said, received most of the family inheritance, two-thirds. Younger sons got some of the inheritance, which was one-third. But listen to me, daughters got none in this culture. Daughters, daughters got none. And you didn't survive socially, physically, politically, economically, unless you had a strong family unit. It was the oldest son's responsibility to keep the family together. It was the law of primogenitors, what it's called, primogenitor. You could look that up. It's P-R-I-M-O-G-E-N-I-T-O-R, the law of primogenitor. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. The God of the Bible, Christianity, wants to relate to us as a father, and we are his sons who carry on his name and wealth. So no other religion offers this status of privilege. Think about this. There's no other religion that offers this status of privilege. Every other religion on the face of the earth, the gods are kings, and we are subjects not sons. 
That's a world of difference. So here's the next fill in the blank. In God's family, everyone is deeply loved and treated like a firstborn son. Everyone. So that's the theology of this idea of sonship. It's subversive. Imagine women, slaves, different despised races all entering into this status of sonship upon faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the church in those days really looked different. It was made up of every race, every gender, every person in that culture. They all became sons of God. Women may think this is gender insensitive. I know that people would push back on that in our feminist culture today. Oh, that's, that's insensitive. Women, you shouldn't be irritated over being called a son of God any more than men should squirm when called the bride of Christ or when the Bible calls us the shepherd's stupid sheep. And so it uses all of this imagery here. Every biblical metaphor tells us something about God's grace to us and that no, that, that no other metaphor does. Therefore, you have to hang on to all of them. You have to have all of these metaphors. All of these metaphors gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God and the gospel and our understanding and our relationship with, with Christ. So it's really amazing. Every biblical metaphor tells us something about God's grace to us and we need, that's why we need to embrace all of them. So here's, what are the privileges of sonship? What is that? This is where we wrap it up. And these are out of this world. And I, I get these. I was looking for some verses that would kind of help us to kind of give us in kind of a, kind of a nut form, kind of a short way of seeing all this. And I found Romans 8, 15 through 17. Kind of a concise summary of these privileges. And, and so these verses are packed with our privileges of sonship. Romans 8, 15 through 17. If you want to turn there, you can turn there. I'm going to read it. Listen to what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight points. We'll go through them pretty quickly. But these are eight privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus, shoes of sonship. Now, now, here's the crazy thing about it. I think, we're, I think for the most part, we might be really good at repenting. I'm not sure that we're really good about believing this about us. I don't think we, we I think we struggle really embracing this because I'm, I'm convinced the more you live in the reality of these privileges of where we're going, the more you'll be unshakable unoffendable and unstoppable in life. If you lived in the reality of what we're about to say here, shoes of sonship, your privileges that we have that are better than anything you could ever have, you would be unshakable in life, you would be unoffendable. That's what I want. Anybody there? 
I mean, that's too often I get offended too easy. It's like, what's wrong with you, Davis? Come on. Toughen up. And then unstoppable. Unshakable, unoffendable, unstoppable. Here's the first one, freedom. Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery. So he's saying we don't need to be enslaved by anything. You are never more free than when you are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. People can talk about freedom all day long. I mean, we're a country of the, of the free, but most people here are not free. Most people are enslaved to a lot of things. And so you can live in a free country and still be very enslaved. God has come to set us free. You can live in a, in a communist country and be free. Sounds crazy. If you have Christ, you can be in prison. I've seen more people in prison free more than those that are outside of the prison because they know Jesus Christ. They're fully devoted followers of Christ, and they're experiencing a freedom that only he can give. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. There's no, no, no more condemnation, no more guilt and shame. We can let go of that. But he also sets us free from the power of sin working in our lives. We don't have to be controlled by the created things of our life and be overwhelmed by, by the loss of those things. Not that we don't get sad, we do get sad, and we do you know, struggle with anxiety, but it doesn't have to be inordinate. It doesn't have to overwhelm us. And, and so he sets us free from the penalty of sin, the, the, the power of sin, and one of these days he will set us free from the very presence of sin. That's when we will be with him for all eternity. Oh my goodness, talk about freedom. And then there's courage. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We don't need to be worried and stressed out and anxious about anything. That's what he's talking about here. There's courage, courage. We don't need to be worried about politics or economy or relationships or COVID or our health. Or you could add to the list, what are you most worried about? What are you struggling with? He's saying you don't need to be worried. You can face those things with courage. You can face anything with courage. And with a peace, what is peace? Peace is confidence in God's loving, wise control of our lives, that he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in power. And he's always working for our good in his glory. Regardless of what it might look like, he's always with us. So we've got freedom, we've got courage, by the way, it would be good for you just to take that list this next week as you head into the new year and just prayerfully work through each of these and think out the implications of what that means to your life and your current situation and your circumstances and the things you're facing. Oh my goodness, it'll make a difference. See, that's how we begin to take the truths of God and apply them specifically to where our hearts are most restless. It's one thing to know those truths kind of as a concept, but you need to make it a reality in your life. Lord. Through the Holy Spirit, make this real to my heart as I face the issues that I'm facing. Oh, I'm finding myself responding kind of with a lot of negative emotion here. It's evidence that I, I need some of those truths down into my heart so that I don't respond in such a reckless way. So you got freedom, you got courage, you got identity. Verse 15, it's given us the spirit of adoption. J.I. Packer put it this way, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor, listen to what he says, the traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. That's us. We're the traitors. 
He's brought us in for supper and given us a family name. There is no greater achievement or accomplishment in life than to be called a child of God. Just think, think for a minute. What would be the, most, the greatest accomplishment or achievement that you'd like to accomplish or achieve in life? Think about it. What would be the greatest thing? I don't know if you watched that special yesterday, that all Madden special about, about Madden, the coach. Anybody watch that? Okay, just Jason and I. We're the only football people here. <laughs> or, you, you know, you see these specials that it really elevates certain, you know, coaches and certain people and certain, and we applaud them and think, wow, that's quite an accomplishment. And certainly those are great accomplishments, but I'm telling you, all those ac- accomplishments, all the achievements in this world are nothing compared to the fact that we are children of God. Our identity as a child of God, oh my goodness. If you think otherwise, it's because you're not living in the reality of this. All achievement, all accomplishments in this world pale in comparison to being a child of God. I'm telling you. Regardless of what you're being told in our culture today, I'm not saying that those people aren't doing some great things. And and even as a child of God, we're going to do great things, but not for our glory, but for the glory of God. Because we already, we're children of God. And that's totally different. Intimacy, and then we've got intimacy with God. So you've got freedom, courage, identity, spirit of adoption. You've got intimacy with God. We cry, Abba, Father. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. In his presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 1611. Oh, my goodness. After that series that we did on hearing the voice of God, have you, I'm hoping that most of us are really cultivating greater levels of intimacy with God. There's nothing better, I'm telling you. There's nothing better. We cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Oh, my goodness. Intimacy. And then assurance, verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. By the way, you'll never get this if you don't slow down enough. You've got to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. We're all busy, but you've got to get rid of the hurry and quit being so preoccupied either with the past or the future. You've got to be in the moment and so that you can spend time with him. And as you do that, you'll have a sense of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are truly a child of God. If you're not taking out time to do that, you're not going to have that assurance. And by the way, that assurance is not based on our performance and our record. It's based on his performance and his record. Let me ask you this. Are we saved? Are we saved by works? No. Can you be lost by works? That's a tough one, isn't it? If you're not saved by works, you're not lost by works, but you're either saved or lost either by accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ. You can't be lost by works. Works, The works certainly reveal your faith or your lack of faith. But we all struggle. Anybody here sinless? Okay. Oh, there's one guy right back there. I feel bad for his wife right there sitting next to him. He's he's joking around. If he's not, we're going to bring him up and pray for him at the end of the service. No, we're, we're not sinless. We need to sin less as we follow Christ, but, it, but it's not based on our performance. It's based on his performance and his record. And when we're not 
performing well, it's because we need to get back to our justification. Our sanctification, which is a practical righteousness, is because we're not living in the reality of our positional righteousness. He's not gonna kick you out of the family. He loves you. This son was coming back home and saying, I don't even deserve to be his son. You're a son by birthright, get in here. He made a mess, he repented. He received him back. And so as Christians, we, what do we do? We fall down, we repent, we believe. We repent and believe. It's a daily thing. We should be doing that every day. All of life is repentance and believing in Jesus. I find myself being overwhelmed by you know, uh, circumstances. I repent and believe in him. When I'm overtaken by temptation, I repent and believe in him. I come back to him. I keep coming back to him. And that's, that's what we have to do. That's what we need to do. And so our assurance is based on, on, on Christ, not on us. Man, if, I, if, if my assurance was based on my performance and record, I'm shot, and so are you. Right. It's the cross. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. That's my hope. When I stand before God, I'm not going to stand before him like an elder brother saying, hey, I did all these things, accept me. No, you're not going to do that. There's not an ounce of good works that you can do that will get you into heaven. It's all based on Jesus. It's all based on him. I rely on him. So when I blow it, it just helps me to appreciate his grace that much more and run back into his arms. It, it doesn't give me permission to just go out and sin. Why would I do that? I'm not trample on his love and wisdom. Man, I want to honor him. And I know I don't always do that, but I'm, I'm okay to say, hey, I made a mess. Yeah, I, I, I misspoke. Man, please forgive me. Help me, Lord. But boy, do I appreciate his grace even that much more. When I see my own sinfulness in light of his grace, I'm telling you, that younger brother, when he came home and what he received from the father, he would never think twice about going back out and doing that again. And he wouldn't think twice about becoming an elder brother either. He sees how his brother is and how he's behaving. It's horrible. It's terrible. Okay, I said too much on that, didn't I? Okay. So, so you got freedom, courage, identity, intimacy, assurance, inheritance. We're going to talk more about it this next week, this inheritance. We're kind of finishing the series this week, but next week, new, uh, new Year, New Hope, we're going to really talk about our past, present, and future, how to head into the future. But, but here's part of our inheritance. Yesterday's failures, today's burdens, tomorrow's uncertainties are no match for God's amazing grace working for me, in me, and through me. We're going to talk more about that next, next weekend. And our bad things are working for our good. Our truly good things can never be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. That's, that's the basic outline uh, for next week, so you don't need to come. I'm kidding. We're going to go into more detail with that. Next one is discipline. Oh, that's a privilege. How come you put that as a privilege? Notice he says in verse 17, provided we suffer. Provided we suffer. For a child of God, suffering is not punitive, but purifying. He's wanting to, us to grow deeper and wiser and stronger and more fully satisfied in him. The reason why temptations overtake us and, and trials overwhelm us is because we're not finding our deepest satisfaction in him. We've built our satisfaction on created things, and they're letting us down, and that's why they overwhelm us and overtake us. 
And so he uses discipline to reveal that stuff in our life. Listen, when you go through hard times, we've all been through hard times. And there's been some hard times I've gone through that I felt like giving up, to be quite honest with you. And yet I haven't, and I've continued to persevere. But I'm telling you, now I look back on it, I wouldn't wish those hard times on my worst enemy, and at the same time, I wouldn't trade those hard times for anything because of what God's done in my life, what he's done in my life through that. I have a greater level of intimacy with him. I know that I'm stronger, I'm deeper, I'm wiser as a result of that. That's the discipline. And because he wants us, here's the last one, he wants us to take on the family likeness. Verse 17, that we may be glorified with him. He wants us to have love and joy and peace in all circumstances. Now here's what's interesting about Jesus. Jesus attracted younger brothers, and that's the context of this uh, Luke 15. But elder brothers despised him. So, the more you become like Jesus, guess what? You will attract younger brothers. But elder brothers, beware, will despise you. Unless somehow you can help them to see the Father's love and plead with them to come and follow Christ. Next weekend, New Hope, New Year. Uh, I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders or leaders. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you'd love to give your life to Christ, this would be a great time to do that. I'd love to pray with you about that. If you have any questions about this message, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Let me pray. Father God, we are filled with wonder and indebtedness for you sending your son to this earth to rescue, redeem, and reconcile us to you. We repent of our trying to be our own Savior and Lord by either being younger brothers or elder brothers. Thank you for the imagery of the, of the shoes of sonship giving us these amazing privileges as your firstborn sons. May these truths be more than a concept in our head, but a reality in our heart, changing every part of our lives. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.